to the Learning 3.0 podcast. I'm Rustika Lamb from Bloom, and in each episode, I chat to learning and technology thought leaders and how to support business performance through people performance. So Donald, welcome to the Learning 3.0 podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. And uh, I really appreciate as a thought leader globally that uh, you've supported New Zealand and we've been doing the <laughs> L&D sentiment survey for three or four years now and you've always been so supportive of New Zealand. So I really sort of want to thank you for that. Well, it's a... Uh... It's always important to get different people's views on things. You've kindly called me a thought leader, but I'd rather regard myself as someone who reflects back what people are doing. And that's what the Global Sentiment Survey is about. For us and for me, it's a privilege to have input from New Zealand into the survey because it gives another perspective on how the world thinks. So it's very much a symbiotic relationship. We all help each other. Oh, that's lovely. And as you always say, New Zealand, what are you doing? <laughs> it's, always a, it's always a bit of an outlier, right? <laughs> so always, sure. always unique, always unique. The answers from New Zealand don't match with anybody else. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, for all the other podcasts for this theme, which is uh, the future of learning, I've talked about the fact that us Gen Xers who are sort of in our late 40s and 50s now, really, we've seen a couple of recessions. So we've seen 2002 and we've, we've seen 2008. And I'd be really interested in your thoughts, um, because it's interesting, mm. everyone's got their own unique lens and perspective, is what are your thoughts about the last two recessions and how might that be different to now? You're kind enough to call me a Gen Xer. I think, technically speaking, I'm a boomer because I was born in 1963, right at the end of the post-war. Oh, we'll, um, we'll take you boom. in. <laughs> you can come with the Gen Xers. <laughs> I think I'm marginal. I don't know. Anyway, I've seen other recessions as well. But I think that what marks out the recessions that you've talked about and the current recession, and actually today is the 9th of June, and we've just had it announced that the US economy is officially in recession, which is the driver of the world economy, or one of the main drivers. So yes, there's no doubt there is going to be a recession in most developed countries. What marks the difference between 2002, 2008, and 2020 recessions against previous recessions is that this is the post-worldwide web world, or certainly the post.com world. If we think about the explosion in connectivity that happened, that's altered the world economy quite considerably, from being local markets, which I experienced growing up in the UK in the 70s and 80s, to a global marketplace. And that makes a huge difference for everybody, and including for for learning and development. So that's, I think, the background to this. If we look at 2002, 2008, and 2020, I noticed very clearly in 2002, 2008, I don't know if this is your experience Mm -hmm. in New Zealand. So I'd like to get your take on it. In 2002, it was quite a brutal recession, dealt with very much in the same way the previous recessions had been. So the first to the chop were marketing and training. Mm -hmm. And they were axed pretty violently. And I had been in charge of a training centre in London in 1998, 1999, $12 million turnover. We were very successful. I ran it very tightly. We were very profitable, not because I left, but I left right at the end of 1999. And then 2002, that was the beginning of the end for it, went into, like a lot of training companies, went to bad times and went bust. Right. Even though it was really profitable. Oh, it was a, it was a very highly successful operation. But that doesn't matter, actually. Face-to-face training, it's like the restaurant business. It's a really tough business to be in. It's all about 
operational excellence and getting your margins right. And you have a bad couple of months, so it's very difficult to recover. And yes, it was a well-run operation, but it could not recover and it went bust. Now, in 2008, it was different. In 2008, people were much more, I think, savvy to the idea that they would need skills in their workplace to come out of the recession afterwards. And what tended to happen was a range of measures, whether it's reducing hours, reducing pay, getting people temporarily furloughed, as we'd call it now probably, but learning and development departments or training departments, as they largely were called them, were less likely to be axed. It was more the case that there were some measures put in place, maybe a few people were lost. But very often, there was a general lowering of wages and salaries across organisations so that people could come back. Now, that was my experience in the UK. Does that match your experience and the experience of other people that you've interviewed? Yeah, absolutely. 2002 was very much people just lost their jobs and that was it. Yes. Um, there was There was not much more. What I noticed in New Zealand in 2008, strangely, or maybe not, there was a whole lot of induction type work that was going on. Like I cycled around a company three times. I called it my red march. I <laughs> went to one company that had a red logo, then to the other. And it was just three times I actually went in and redid inductions. So it seemed to be that late 2008, nine was very much an induction type program. But I think maybe that's because they were looking, starting to look how to blend and how to reduce costs. Because in those days, you had like a four-week right. induction. It's unheard of now. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely, it does measure, but more specifically in 2008, it was around induction. Now, I think, actually, we've mentioned something there which does give us a hint as to what's going to happen next. You said we'd have a four-week face-to-face induction. You wouldn't have that now. You absolutely wouldn't have it. You wouldn't have had that in 2019, but you're especially not going to have it in 2021. And I think the big change that we're going to see is twofold. First, it's the result of recession. But secondly, it's the result of a new way of working. Now, New Zealand has been famously very successful in tackling the virus, but you've still had people working from home. Mm. In the UK at the moment, and we're at the beginning of June as we record this, I'm working from home. And I have been since, really since the 14th of February, when I went to the trip to Madrid and I came back and that was it. I was not going to do any more travelling. And I did one trip into town after that to have dinner with somebody and that was it. So... We've been consciously locking down and working from home, and that's been across the economy, well, across the knowledge economy, of course. If you need to work physically, you've either not been able to, or you've been furloughed, but you've not been able to get into work to do it. So we have a situation at the moment where we've got a recession, but we also have an entirely new habit of work. We can get to that in a minute, because I suspect you'll want to look at that in much more detail. But I think we can't ignore that. It's absolutely fundamental to how things are going to change. But in addition, we have the recession piece. Now, the recession piece, for me, means what it always means, which is companies are going to want to indulge in saving costs and being as effective as possible. If we think of the 2020 mindset as being a continuation of what's happened before, I've seen that there are some sectors in L&D which have been very badly hit by the current recession. If you're a freelancer, if you're producing content for face-to-face courses, generally, then you haven't got a job. And it's been quite appalling to see in the first few weeks of the lockdown, I was dealing with and helping or trying to help a lot of people who were suddenly without work. 
that isn't going to come back, I don't think, in the short term, because what will happen is people will find other ways of doing things and they won't then go back to the old models. So I'm afraid for me, the bad news is that if you were a freelancer and you've lost your work as a result of this recession, it will be slow to return. That doesn't mean that freelance work of other sorts won't be available. It will be, but it's likely to be different sorts. That's one thing. That's one very specific part of the marketplace. The people that were doing predominantly face-to-face, I think there's been some people that will survive that because they've got a mindset that says, actually, I can blend this. But I talked to quite a few people who were doing face-to-face training who were like, no, you cannot do my content. It has to be face-to-face. It is the only way to do it. So I think if that mindset persists, I think that possibly they will be the ones that will have to go and do someone else. Like I heard today of someone who was doing a posty run to support their family who'd been doing face-to-face training. So it's quite interesting. Doing a what run, sorry? Posty, like um, delivering mail. Right, okay, again, you know, you're working with an international audience here. Well, I don't know what a posty run is. You're going to have to add subtitles or something. Okay, thank you for the subtitles. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, absolutely. So I hear you on that. So if there's a mindset shift that can't happen, that's going to be challenging for some people. But for those, and it's not just the mindset because you may have people who are saying, "Well, actually, I'm quite capable of designing for a range of media," but they've been put in somebody else's mind in a particular box. Yes. Um, So maybe they're used to producing face to face, and they can produce online, but they're not thought of in that way. So that's a question of rebranding. Mm. And I always said that the, what I saw, especially as you say in those first few weeks, is it with the people that had sown the seeds early and for a long time, sure. well, early and sure. before, that's the people that didn't lose the work. I don't know if you saw it, you probably saw on LinkedIn, people sort of trying to say, oh, buy my things, buy my things. It's like, this is not the time to buy my things. <laughs> like People will go to people oh. they trust already. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. And it's like, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day that I spend a bit of time mentoring. And we were talking about composition in a company. And I said, well, do you want to do some more blogging, some more writing, some more putting yourself out there? And she said, no, I'm, I'm quite comfortable where I am at the moment. And I said, you may be comfortable, but we have no idea what's going to happen in the future. Mm. If I were you, I'd get out there and I'd start blogging and I'd start saying more about myself because your employment prospects are not solely your decision. And it may be you find yourself without work in six months' time. At that point, it's too late to start developing your network. So start developing your network, start thinking about how you can get in contact with people and and show all the great stuff you can do now when you're in a good position. So you're absolutely right. It's the people who, by the way, this is a constant refrain I get from people who say, very sadly, I've been made redundant. What do I do next? And the answer is always, I never say this to people, obviously, but you should have started building your network five yes. years ago. plant the seeds. <laughs> exactly. The best time to plant a tree is 10 years 20, ago. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So anybody listening to this who's thinking, well, I dodged a bullet on this one, don't assume that everything's all right. I would absolutely build your network and start making sure that you've got good contacts outside your organization because who knows when... You might need them. And to be fair, they might need you because it's always a reciprocal arrangement. If you're in a network, it's not just for your benefit. It should be for everybody's benefit. Mm. So we've got a bit sidetracked there, Rustica, on, well, on the personal employment uh, advice. Well, yes and no, because I think that, you know, this probably is different to last time is in that possibly there has been an opportunity for people to build their network earlier. I think yeah. in the last two recessions, 
there wasn't the work. There seems to be a lot of reskilling and crossing over of what people are doing yes. now. So, so yes and no. And, and I think it comes back to value. Uh, it's something that we talked about before. What value can people provide now and what p- value have they been providing and are they seen as a value provider? And it's like what you said right mm-hmm. at the beginning. We really appreciate that, you know, that every year we get the Global Sentiment Survey and you've cut the data for New Zealand but at the same time, that helps you as well. So that's a, a, a yeah. mutually beneficial value exchange. So, so what do you think will emerge next? What's going to be different this time? Well, what's different this time is that we've gone through a massive, drawn-out communal experience. At its peak, over 3 billion people were in lockdown, and a vast number of people were working from home or remotely in some way. Mm in a way that simply hasn't been done before. What this means is that in April, we were doing things in a commonplace, regular way that would have been thought impossible in January. Yep. Mm -hmm. Getting together for meetings, brainstorming, sharing information, doing all the things which normally think, yeah, yeah, I've got to be in the office for that. No, you don't, it turns out. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not a trivial observation. What happens is, however much people wave their arms around about the future of work and and so on, what actually changes people's habits is experience. And we've had a massive communal experience that is probably the only thing you can do to really give people a jolt. It reminds me of the adoption of the Roman or the the European alphabet by the Turks in 1928. Uh, Kemal Ataturk, the leader of the Turkish Republic, said to his body of academics, he said, we need to move from this... Arabic script, which we use at the moment, which actually isn't very well suited to Turkish. We need to move from this Arabic script to the European script. How long will it take? And they said it's going to take five years. He said, no, you've got three months. And they did it in three months. They did a very good job. And Turkish is written in the same script that we use with a couple of extra accents. And the lesson there is that when you absolutely have to do something and you have no choice about it, guess what? You can do it. And all these assumptions that we'd had that there was only one way to run a meeting, only certain things could be learned online and the rest had to be done face-to-face, were all simply proved to be wrong. This is a huge, huge thing for learning and development for a number of reasons. First is, generally, work is going to change. So Twitter has announced that it's going to allow all employees to work from home. Every employee can work from home. Mm. I know companies, I can't say who they are, looking for new premises at the moment and have said, right, well, rather than going for a policy of 25% of people being able to work from home as we buy this new office space, we're going to get 50% of people working from home. Now, that's a huge shift. And what happens is you've got people now working from home much more regularly. This is not something that is uniformly good. Many people find working from home difficult. Many people have other things they have to do at home. Many people at home don't feel safe. Nonetheless, it's going to happen. Learning and development will be very largely affected by this. And I think the key thing that's come out of this is that The battleground has changed. We're no longer arguing about whether things can be done online or not. Mm. We don't have to make the case that it should be done online Mm. because everyone's done that Zoom meeting. Everyone's done this stuff where they say, yeah, of course we can do it. You're not even arguing about that now. That's an entirely different conversation. Mm -hmm. The conversation now is what value am I providing to the business? And I think we have to go back. As learning development starts to come out of lockdown along with everything else, we have to go back and start proactively having conversations with people in the business saying, where are we adding value? 
What are the behavioural issues you're facing? Which of those can be tackled with training and which can't? How can we support you in meeting the business needs of the organisation? That's a very different conversation to how much onboarding do you need and where should we do the training? It's a much more strategic conversation and it may be uncomfortable, but it's the conversation that has to be had because if we don't have it, I worry that we're going to have some bad effects. One bad effect will be just like what happened in 2002 when the Twin Towers came down. After 9-11, there was a blanket ban on travel in the US, air travel. Mm -hmm. People who had been flying around to do training didn't do it. Suddenly, they had to do everything online. And what did that mean? It meant that people start PowerPoint presentations online with a click next button in the bottom right-hand corner, and they called it e-learning. Now, that was a really bad experience for people. Some people have had great learning experiences over the past few months online. Some people have had really bad experiences. What we don't want is the sense that, yeah, okay, well, we'll do that substand online thing because it's cheaper, because that's what happened up to 2002. Mm. We don't want that post-recession experience. What we want is people to, in our field, to set the agenda. We need to say, by the way, everybody, we are now in a beta phase where we're building a new capability for the future. You might even call it, and I've heard people do this, we're calling coronavirus training or training in the time of corona, right? This is what we're doing. And these courses will change. Our delivery methods will iterate. Set the expectation right at the start that we're doing something temporary and developing it. Otherwise, people will assume that what they've had is what learning is. That's the first thing. The second thing we absolutely have to avoid is the inevitable reaction as we go into recession from people saying, you don't need those classrooms anymore and you don't need that whole budget thing, so we're going to slash it by 80%. Mm. And I can see that's going to happen to a lot of people as we come out of this, unless, unless we are proactive and go out and have that conversation about how we need to be strategic with the business. If we do that, then there'll be a question mark, at least in people's minds, about the budget. It's a very long answer. Does that make sense, though? Yeah, it totally does. And I think I really like what you're saying is that L&D people are now building capability for the future. I've seen one of two things as well. One is we're just going to cut the team and some significant yeah. you know, large companies, multinationals cutting the, the team. Others going, actually, no, let's redeploy let's actually upskill our people. They may have had to let a few people go, but I haven't seen the wholesale, you know, 2008, 2002 yes. of letting go. Um, so I think the smart organisations will be saying, actually, how can we reskill? I've seen L&D teams go out and deliver mail. I've seen them sit in contact centres. I've said they're doing all sorts of things in the meantime. But I think, yeah, you're quite right. That's quite critical, is it? What are we doing to build capability for the future? Because it will be different. That then comes back, obviously, to what are the business goals right now? Because they would have changed. The business goals, of course, will differ for each organisation. And, yes. and the key thing is to have a methodology for finding out what they are. Yeah. And I always say that we tend to be very good at looking internally in learning development, very bad at looking externally, both externally within the organisation and outside it. And I think that the first thing we need to do is get out of the training room and just go and have conversations with people about what the business goals are and seek out... This is the most difficult thing. Seek out the people who are least likely to be friendly because they're the ones you'll learn the truth from. And as well as the people in the organisation, the documentation in the organisation is too often ignored by L&D. But if you're in a private company or a public company, you'll have an annual report that you should be able to read or a strategy document you should be able to get a hold of. And if you're not reading those, you are undermining your future. 
So find out as much as you can about what the company says about itself. As well as looking externally within the organization, look externally outside the organization. What are other companies like ours doing? And then come back with sensible suggestions, ideas, or just background knowledge into the conversations you're having with the rest of the business. That's not the traditional L&D way. Traditionally in L&D, we're very good at making content and delivering it. That's going to keep happening, but you can probably go out and get that done anyway if you need to. Mm. If you are comfortable producing content, don't produce content because you're comfortable doing it. Produce it because it's the right thing. Get uncomfortable to having conversations about the business because that's going to underpin your future success. Sorry, Vestica, you were saying something. It's just really to your point is that a lot of L&D people create content because that's where they're comfortable, because they're, they're yeah. creatives and they like to do that. Yes. Um, and I have been banging on about this for a long time. It's <laughs> about the commercial acumen of L&D people. And I don't know how we lift that capability in L&D to have business conversations because, you know, I've heard a lot of L&D people who have tried to get the strategy or the goals or the future can't get it. We're not giving it to you. It's like, like really, like, am I supposed to help your business when, like, well, I can't have it? So, when that happens, it happens with one person or two people, but it's a bit like hitchhiking. You only need to pick up one lift to find out, right? So, just go out and keep talking to people until somebody gives you the document and don't take no for an answer because yeah. it's your bloody job to know this stuff. <laughs> it really is. If you don't get hold of it, you can't let other people in the organization stop you doing your job. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So, which takes us to the next point is about teams. Like, what do the do you think the teams will look like going forward? Because I think the teams are going to look quite different. Well, how do you think they're going to look different? Tell me. Well, I think the commercial acumen's one. There'll be an expectation of yeah. we need to move the ship from this to this. How are you going to help me? And how do we build the capability of those people in R and D to do that? I think Agile, and I always rolled my eyes <laughs> with, with Agile, but I think listening and learning and doing quite a bit of reading, I think that will be the way forward. And I really do think coronavirus will be the death knell of SCORM. I think it will be, we need to get into more data analytics, which often people are not because they're in that creative phase. I think that we are not making use of the technology that's there, like in terms of integrating systems, the, the best of breed connecting we were talking about that you know, prior to recording, taking the best of everything and mm-hmm. using API mm-hmm. and integration data. So I just think it's going to look very different. And having, I guess, a psychology degree, I have done some sort of testing, site testing of, of L&D teams, and they do seem to fit in that very in, intuitive, creative people space. And I think we're moving mm-hmm. more into a detailed, apart from the commercial acumen, you know, commercial data-driven phase. And so I just think that it's a bit like the seasons. We've had almost, we've had spring, we've had summer, we've had the autumn, we're in winter, guys, this is detail land. So that's my take anyway, for what it's worth. I don't, I don't see why it should be winter necessarily. <laughs> um, look on it rather, choose a metaphor not of the seasons, but of a journey. We are slowly making our way from one type of terrain to another. So perhaps Perhaps we were in a nice meadow with flowers in it, and that was very creative. And now we're making our way through perhaps a slightly more difficult territory, which needs good map reading. That's why we need to have data analytics. Okay, well, like, like, a, like a glacier. Well, maybe. <laughs> like you okay. still don't like you're, that. You're very, keen, you're very keen on the whole winter thing, aren't you? I would say, I totally agree. Totally agree. Business acumen, absolutely. And I would say that learning and development is likely to be very similar to 
marketing in many ways, yes. uh, which has for about 15 years been making a very solid trend towards being much more data-driven. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean there's not creative work to be done there. There certainly is very creative work, but it's also underpinned by a solid understanding of data. And I totally agree that understanding data and how to use it, and also analytics for data, is going to be crucial for learning development for the future. Uh, I'd also say the business acumen piece, you're absolutely right. Technically, totally agree that we need to have people who understand XAPI and how to link things together and share data between systems. But of course, we also need people who are what I'd call socially savvy influencers, mm. because all of this stuff doesn't sit in the L&D bubble. And if we have L&D people doing analytics on the stuff they get out of their LMS, that's just no use. Learning produces its own analytics, but it's really only valuable when you start combining it with data from the rest of the business. So you need somebody who's going to be good enough to go to the rest of the business and say, hey, sales, we can really help you doing your job. We're going to need to get access to your Salesforce data, whatever. Um, You probably need to have the same conversation with HR and other people and pull in data from different sources. So as well as the people who've got the XAPI skills to do the plumbing and put things together, as well as the people who do the analytics of what does this all mean, you need somebody who's got the charm and the persuasive power to actually get access to the data. And then on top of all that, yes, you need somebody, as you say, who's got the business savvy to understand what the data all means and then to ask the right questions of it. And then you go through an iterative process. Well, what does that actually mean? And then you give it back to the charming socially adept people to go back into the business and say, well, okay, this is what the data tells us. How can we work together? So it's a combination. And by the way, these are all different tasks we're describing, and they can all be done by one person if they're super efficient, but typically they tend to be done by different people. Mm. For me, it's that business of having ambassadors in the business is is something that's too often forgotten. That's one part of it. Another role in L&D, which is aligned to that, but also links to the creativity and to the data side, is marketing. We're a very bad bunch when it comes to trying to market anything typically we imagine that marketing means putting up a poster and sending out an email and it's a lot more than that now we've got some people who are really good in our field of doing campaigns some people who are very good at doing sort of socially based stuff that needs to become the norm in organizations and i think we're going to see two technologies in particular become very important for learning as people are learning remotely one of which is learning through existing communications channels, particularly Slack and Teams. And anything that can drop learning content into those and anything that can stimulate discussion and, where possible, curate it between people on those is going to be invaluable. And we're, get, we're definitely seeing that already happening. I know startups are doing great work in that field. So using comms channels is one. So yeah. just on that, have you, and like I have nothing to do with this company, but have you seen ob.ai, the AI integration with Slack? Yes, deliver? I have. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. I think this is where it's heading. I think in the short term would be connected to a learning management system, but delivering that in your pocket, ask OB whatever, and you've actually got that resource delivered into your pocket. So yeah, so I totally agree with that. Um, I think that's that's very future you know, next six, 12 months. Then there's a Berlin-based startup does the same thing with Slack and Teams. I'm not quite sure which one. Uh, Kiwi, yeah. Data, I think it's called. Same yes. deal. Yeah. Dropping it. Where are the people? They're in Slack, they're in Teams. Or drop the stuff in there. Don't make them go elsewhere. We'll let them ask through a short code or a whatever. Or a chat engine, a chatbot. Yeah. And if it's that. not there, ask my team. It's not there, 
add it to the knowledge base. I, I just think okay. that's probably where it's going. So yeah, sorry. So yeah, so that's, well, that's, that's no, no, but you're absolutely right. That's one. Well, that's one of the things. It's not so to say that other things become less important, mm. but in terms of performance support, in particular, that's absolutely what people do. They turn around to the person next to them. But of course, if you're working at home, yes, you've got the cat on the sofa. He's not going to help you. So you, <laughs> you you ask chat or you ask Teams. And that's where having this AI-driven support will be crucial. It doesn't mean it can't be used for, long, for larger chunks of learning as well. It can be. So that's one thing, which is this, this business of having existing comms channels being used for learning. And we need people who can do that. And of course, link the data back because... The point about this is not just that individuals find access to information, but also that everything carries a data trail, which has significance at an individual level, but huge significance when aggregated. So if you know that everyone's asking this question, well, you sort that out because that's an important thing. But then you find patterns with time, geography, particular managers or teams, and that tells you stuff as well. And that's why you need to have the people who not just know how to look at the data, but then people who know how to then interpret it, if you see what I mean. Mm. So the comms channels, great as a tool and also as a generator of data. And on the other side, the other tool, which I think is I've seen bubbling up for the past couple of years, is coaching and mentoring. Coaching mentoring delivered online. Now, managers have always had coaching and mentoring as part of their role. They haven't necessarily done a very good job with it because they've been a bit busy doing other stuff. But actually, it's a pretty important part of their role. And I think organizations that take it seriously are going to provide their managers with the support they need to do a good job with this. And that increasing is going to mean technology as well. And I've seen some great tools, also seen some pretty questionable tools around the field of coaching and mentoring, but the best ones will support the actual managers in doing their role of coaching by doing simple things like providing prompts for people, providing pathways, perhaps having a chatbot which enables people to ask questions which they then respond to and enables them to reflect on something. And again, subject to some serious restraints on privacy of data, this can produce some extraordinarily useful data as well. I don't mean in terms of having some sort of ghastly AI-driven thought police, but rather (laughs) that we have a way of understanding what issues people have got in an organisation and at an aggregate level, understanding how better we can support people in developing themselves. So that's two things which we don't normally think about. And in addition, so you ask what are the roles of the future going to look like? I think we need people who've got skills with comms tools and we need people who know about coaching and mentoring in order to support managers in that and in particular help them with technology either doing stuff themselves internally or going out and buying tools to help with it Mm. so i think it's a very different future but i think all of that all of that comes back to this point that more people won't be working side by side in the office which is why you need the comms tools why you need remote coaching and mentoring supported by tools and there'll be other things as well which we don't even know about at the moment Mm. And some of the other people I have interviewed, one of them had, um, actually, I don't know if it was one of the podcast hosts, but recently heard of a team that had actually employed a physics graduate for their thinking Go skills. On. To enter your marketing point, someone who had actually employed a journalist because they know how to write comms that has got the hook. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Got all the yeah, bits. Absolutely. So I think if you're just employing like for like, this person's like me, actually, that's not probably going to cut it in the new world. I think it's very dangerous. I think one thing, you talked about agility earlier. I think diversity is another word that we should be hanging our hats on. We need to have a range of ways of thinking about things. 
And if you employ people like you, you're going to get a bunch of people who think like you and sooner or later you'll be blindsided by something none of you thought about. Yeah, exactly, exactly. As a little side, it's, it's quite interesting how we're seeing people pivot. I think we're seeing companies pivot and I think we are going to need to see that pivot in learning and development teams as well. Hopefully. I mean, I don't, I'm not conscious that everyone's going to be able to do it, but I think if you are sufficiently self-aware individually and as a team, yes, you'll, you'll be able to pivot. Other people will continue marching on into what I call comfortable extinction, where you keep doing what you've always done <laughs> until suddenly you fall off the edge of a cliff. Yes, and I was um, talking to the uh, firecracker, Laurie Niles-Hoffman, who said yes. she thinks 30% are ready to do it, 30% are ready to do 30%, to your point, will walk off the cliff. <laughs> I think Laurie's right, I'm afraid. I've, I've chatted with her about this, and I think she's right. Yeah, I think I've heard the same sort of view from other people, sometimes actually more pessimistically as well. Yes, exactly. Yes. So which takes, takes us, I guess, to the last point, which is, and we've talked a little bit about this, how are we going to yeah. support all this with technology? What technology well, okay. would you think will enable this new way of working? In 2000, 20 years ago, the technology was all about the LMS. It was about the idea that learning was about delivering content to people, much in the same way as it was when we had the phonograph, the radio, the television and film. They were all seen as being ways that were going to revolutionise learning. And they never did because learning does not consist of dumping content in front of people. So if we get that error out of the way and we think about what learning actually consists about, it's something that happens inside people's heads and happens in conversation with between people and happens when people are tackling problems. So the two technologies that we talked about, one being the communications tools, the other being the coaching and mentoring tools, I think will enable us to help people learn properly by, in one case, providing the sort of social conversational support that people need for learning literally in the flow of work. And the coaching side enables people typically to deal with some of the bigger issues around tackling a problem, reflecting on it, and learning from it, which is some of the big picture learning that we need to do at work. Now, that doesn't mean that everything else goes by the board. We still need delivery of content. We still need a lot of other things as well that we've traditionally done. But I think we need those two at least as well. I'd be interested to know what other people said about their technologies they see as supporting learning in the future. Nothing stood out majorly in terms of technology. I think everyone was in agreement that it's got to change. I think everyone's in this sort of, it's almost like a frozen space, like deers in the headlight. Like what yeah, actually yeah. is going to come out of this? And when I think about 2002, for example, 2002 was when Articulate was born. That's when all the next sort of the sort of cloud-based LMSs came out. There's been no real innovation since then. And I think something big's going to come but I don't think anyone knows what that is. I think it'll be factored around learning in the flow of work. I think the other thing is, and, and this is part of my master's project, I think that, remember it used to be, we used to be training and development, and then we're learning and development. I think people really need to sort of stop and think about what are we actually doing from a language point of view? Because, and there was a LinkedIn post that uh, I read and, and someone said, you know, the training word that we've all tried to escape for the last 10 years is actually really education. And it's actually that delivery of information. And I think we, we've we probably underplayed that because there's still an aspect of that and, and to Bob Mosher's work. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, there's, I'm new to the business. I need to know new stuff. I'm new to a role. I need to know new stuff. That is education and that's training. So rather than running away from that term and calling it learning, let's just call it for what it is. It's, we need to know some new stuff. 
how we deliver that, I think, is going to be different to in the flow of work, which will be technology, which, as I said before, I think is going to be, I ra- I'm a manager, I raise a request for um, a new hire. Something gets triggered in my hire system that goes to my learning delivery system, which gives me a checklist. Have you remembered these things? So I think there's this integrated piece, but I just don't think we're all just so, our brains are so full with what's been happening. I don't think we can even envisage it right now. There'll be the creators, the intuitives out there that'll be working on it. It'll be another articulate cloud-based LMS type scenario I'm picking because there's been no real innovation in the last 20 years. Okay, I'm going to disagree with you completely. And I'm going to say it's going to be rather, rather than being one major system that's the new thing that comes. I don't think it'll be one major system. I think it will be a, it will just be an integration of many systems to one delivery. All right. Okay. Well, that's actually close to what I was going to suggest. I, I'm not sure integration is necessarily the right word, although we may disagree about what exactly that means. So for me, as well as those two specific ones I've looked at, I think you're absolutely right about the idea that training is not a dirty word. We all need to learn some things, and some things are best learned in a structured way. Hmm. And I'm very happy to do that. I'm learning Spanish at the moment online with a variety of using an online app, doing an online course in the evenings. And I cannot think of any way to learn a language as an adult, part-time, not living in the country, than having a structured course to do it. It's, and I've done this a number of times, successfully and unsuccessfully. And for me, you have to have a structured approach. So how is it different from the classroom? I think that the future of training in a world where more people are not getting together physically and where everyone understands there's a great cost in getting people together physically. I think it will be much more, to use a term that's been around for a long time, flipped. This is what we do with the Spanish class. You do your homework, you learn some stuff, you come back together in the class. And when you're together, not physically, but synchronously, then you're checking your understanding together. Yes. And then going out into breakout rooms in order to practice. Now, not everything's like learning a language, but... Most things do entail the taking on knowledge, checking that you've understood it properly, and then considering one way or the other how to apply it. And so I can absolutely see a series of learning interventions in the future for people that involve people having this flipped approach. Maybe the breakout rooms are not learning how to order a meal in Spanish, but they're discussing how to use particular management techniques for better feedback. Maybe they'll be thinking the breakout rooms about how they can use a particular new mechanical technique to assist in the production of something in a factor. I'm being quite vague about that because as soon as you get specific, it becomes impossible to understand. But there are lots of things that we learn about and get better at through discussion. And that's the first step usually in implementing our knowledge. And I can totally see that training in the future will be much more like that. And it won't be an integrated platform, but rather it will be a series of things that we do to make learning much more effective because we learn a bit here. We maybe check it. We come together and the social aspect is important there, not just because it's good to chat, but also because that provides peer pressure to get all the work done beforehand. And then we go through a cycle and that cohort goes through Let's say it's a week-long cycle. It could be a month-long cycle of doing a project at work, coming back and discussing the results together. That sort of training, I think, is what's going to happen in the future. It won't have a fancy name. It won't be a 
particular methodology, but it will be something that people do because it works. And I think people who are still, I mean, at, at the moment, I absolutely understand why people have just gone online with Zoom and are delivering classes online, because that's what you had to do to get the job done in the short term. But we're moving out of the short term now. And if anybody's still trying to do six-hour-long delivery in Zoom mm-hmm. in 2021, there's a problem. I'm very happy to be corrected if anybody's got a great example, but I cannot think of any case in which that's the best way of training anybody on anything. And I totally agree with you. And in weeks one, two, three, and four, I had people who were organisations who were purely face-to-face, that we did public workshops, et cetera. And yeah. I said to them, I said, you need to just put your, your content online. So your frameworks, your models yeah. come and you practice. And that under- you just need to understand Bloom's taxonomy the very basic of, of learning and, and how people learn. Yeah. And you should be doing no new learning except what has been pulled out of people's experiences, as you say, through yeah, case yeah. studies yeah. or practice and letting that drive new learning and that knowledge and understanding piece. So I think possibly people need to be understanding actually what drives learning and then allowing that to blend the technology, not just, as you say, picking up my classroom training where I'm going to deliver a whole lot of content to you online for six hours so yeah um, but that's not to try to beat up people who've been doing that because people have been thrust into an almost impossible position but now that we've been through a few weeks of that a few months of that i think we can get our heads up take a breather and say we can't continue at that rate and there is a better way of doing things and there is and we can work together to make sure that by sharing practice good practice that we are all better at helping people learn mm. rather than just trying to push them into protracted Zoom classes online. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we don't really know what's next. (laughs) Really. Anybody who claims, anybody who claims (laughs) what's happening next is talking through their hat. We don't even know if there's going to be a second wave or not. Uh, Given that we don't know that, given that we've got a great deal of science around it, Lord knows we can't predict what's going to happen with the learning. But, you know, I've been following trends for a number of years in our field, and I can safely say that the big picture trends will continue. So data is going to continue to be important to us. Marketing is going to continue to be important to us. Better connections with the business are going to continue to be important to us. And I think any tools that enable people to learn remotely from each other are going to be increasingly important, whether that is comms tools, coaching, or something else that I haven't mentioned. Well, actually, one thing I haven't mentioned is the Humble Webinar. I think the Humble Webinar is often overlooked in all this, But I think it has a role to play for a couple of reasons. Firstly, if you've got an organization where people are used to doing classroom training and they are not reluctant necessarily, but they can't envisage what an online version that looks like, getting people into a webinar is a good first point. So, right, you used to do that. Come together. We're going to discuss this thing, whatever it is, for an hour. Now, there's two things happening. Firstly, it's familiar. It's in your diary. And the great thing about something in your diary is it happens. If it's not in your diary, it, doesn't, it often doesn't happen. It gets pushed down by something else. But the other thing is, because it's familiar, people come in and they, are, they will behave in a certain way and they'll expect to get together and learn. They'll show up. But then the use of the webinar, and I've seen this happen, transforms over time if you allow it to. So it starts off being a formal thing. We come together for an hour, we learn something. But very rapidly, it becomes a discursive tool. You share it for conversations, for meetings very rapidly it becomes something, hopefully, whereby learning and development doesn't have to lead this. It can be anybody. Maybe the receptionist wants to chat with the receptionist 
in other branches of the same business, talk about the implementation of a new security policy and how they can do it. And she invites people from security, security come along as well, and they all have a discussion around it online. Now, that is really solid communication and learning done by a tool which was originally introduced for the formal delivery of content, but is now being done for something completely different. And if you can capture that, results of that discussion in some way, make it available, then you've got a knowledge management tool in operation. Mm-hmm. And that's something which we don't often think about because people think about webinars as being a rather boring thing you listen to because somebody's trying to sell you something. Actually, I think they're a great tool for getting <laughs> as a bridge tool between yes. where people are right now and to sit down and listen to somebody to the future where you've got self-service, user-generated learning taking place in a wide variety of formats. I think it could be a great way of getting people over there. Mm, absolutely. That's fantastic. And I guess the... You better shut me up because I can can keep talking about this stuff all day long and it's your evening and it's my morning. I'm about to wind that up and say the January uh, sentiment (laughs) survey 2021 is going to be so interesting compared to the last four or five years, right? It's going to be amazing. Yeah, and I, I do keep hounding you. What are you doing a mid, mid-year mid one out of I am interest? doing a mid-one. I am doing a mid-one. I'm going to find out that we're going to be putting a survey out um, towards the end of this month, June, asking people what they are doing, not to deal with the short term. I think that's very limited interest. But what plans they've got, and actually the sort of questions you've been asking, how do they see the future of the team, how do they see the future of the business, and, and the one serving the other in the future – I think there's going to be a lot to come out of that. My problem is unpicking the data. The Global Sentiment Survey have one question. It's very straightforward. This one's going to be a lot more complex. But also, I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess to wrap up, what's the best way to get hold of you? (laughs) LinkedIn. Donald H. Taylor on LinkedIn. Actually, if you Google Donald H. Taylor, it's probably me on the first page because I've been that for 20 years. So, but LinkedIn is the best way. Second best way is probably Twitter. Fantastic. That's great. And I've got, it's really interesting when you can't travel internationally, I've started to get this hankering to come back to the UK. <laughs> and it's just like, oh my, I don't think I can for probably a long time. So. <laughs> no. And I've, I've been saying to people in the States, I may not be coming to the States this year. Yes. Do you normally is- go? I'm normally in the States two or three times a year, yeah, and uh, not this year. I don't think it's going to happen in 2020. I, just, I, I think the restrictions on travel in the UK and in the US and the uncertainty about what's going to happen as well means that it's just not worth planning it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, thank you so much for taking time in your morning and my evening. Um, very sad to see <laughs> you won't be drinking out of your whiskey flask. Normally it's the other way around, right? <laughs> normally normally I'm doing it in the evening and I'm, I need a shot of whiskey at the end. Not because of you guys, <laughs> just because it's been a long day. But we look forward to seeing you in London when you can get over and, of course, to having a cup of tea or a glass of whiskey, whatever is your choice. That's right. Thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to that, receiving the, the, not the results, but the questionnaire for your mid-survey, mid-year uh, survey. Will do. Thank look you. Look forward to getting out there. Thank okay, you. Okay, bye. If you'd like to get in touch with me to suggest topics or speakers, you can contact me on LinkedIn or Facebook or find the links in the show notes below. Keep on smiling. Keep on smiling.